The 70 years of exile prophesied by Jeremiah had expired, and the Jews had an opportunity to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple. Nevertheless, it would be several generations before their society was fully reconstructed on the basis of the worship of Yahweh. We'll talk about the challenges they faced as a people and the support they received from those who had been put in place by God. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to another edition of Gospel Doctrine. This is number 47, Let Us Rise Up and Build. We're covering the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and also probably part of the book of Haggai. As always, should you care to uh, email the program, it's gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Very very shortly, we'll be beginning the New Testament as a course of study. And so uh, I hope a lot of you will, will send in your questions. I'd be happy to address them uh, as part of the program for a future issue or for a past issue. Uh, It'd be fun to engage with you in that way. So uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you remember when we discussed Jeremiah, he made a, he made a, a fateful prediction, and that was that the Jews would be in the hands of Babylon or would be exiled for 70 years. Uh, interestingly enough, this is just a side note, but uh, Daniel, towards the end of that 70 years, Daniel had a prayer, and he said, this is towards the end of the book of Daniel, and and he, he said a prayer to God and said, God, we're getting close to the end of the 70 years. Will you start now to restore your people to their rightful place? And uh, he had an interesting vision. And the vision was basically that um, Israel is still wicked. And though it, it didn't say that what Jeremiah said wasn't true, but it, it basically said, your people are still going to suffer not for 70 years, but for 70 times 7. If you remember, 70 times 7 was the number used by Jesus when uh, Peter asked him, how many times do we have to forgive somebody? And Jesus said, and he said, till seven times. And uh, and Jesus said, not seven times, but 70 times 7. Um, it's, a, it's a way of saying forever. It's a way of saying there is no limit to how many. In, in Jewish culture, these numbers have significance, and 70 times 7 is a way of saying it's never going to end. Uh, however, in the case of Daniel, it was pretty, pretty close to uh, a prediction about the beginning of Christ's ministry. It's very interesting. But uh, in any case, the, uh, the Jews were, after 70 years, were released by the conquerors of the Babylonians, the Persians, to return to Judah. So what happened was, uh, if you remember, we talked back when we were finishing the book of Isaiah, we talked about the idea of two Isaiahs. And the reason that a lot of people, well, not the only reason, but one reason that a lot of people think that there were two Isaiahs is because uh, a main reason is right in the middle of the book of Isaiah is a prediction about not the Babylonians that are going to conquer Judah, but the Persians that are going to conquer the Babylonians. And he names one of them by name and calls uh, Isaiah, or God in the book of Isaiah, calls Cyrus his anointed, his Messiah, who's going to restore his people Israel. So this is an interesting line of inquiry. We can think about what what might have led to this um, 
this fact, this name in the book of in the book of Isaiah, because it's not something you find often in Scripture, which is the name of a future king, three hundred years or two hundred years down the down the road, that is going to and and exactly what that king is going to do. Um, and so what happened was Nebuchadnezzar. He oppressed the Jews, but he he tried to be merciful to them, but they kept rebelling, kept rebelling, and then they brutally conquered the Jews. Don't get me wrong, but um, he didn't want to originally destroy the city of Jerusalem, but they did. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, and they carried away most of the Jews captive and enslaved them. However, the Jews uh, were carried away in three waves. The first wave was where Daniel was carried away, among many others, the wealthy and the and the, uh, let's say, the ones who had skills that they could uh, take advantage of in Babylon. And then the second wave were, the again, the, the cream of the crop or the people that were seen as most dangerous. And then finally, everybody was just carried away. Not everyone, but a, a large portion of the population was carried away in the third wave. And that was in 587 AD. It was uh, not too many, maybe 20 years later that... Uh, that Nebuchadnezzar died, and this was the start of the the decline of the Babylonian Empire. And so, um, uh, uh, maybe 25 years after that, so now we're talking about 538 BC, Babylon falls to the Persians, and the, uh, the Persians were led by a man named Cyrus. So, one idea is that Isaiah's followers, the the exiles who had carried with them the book of Isaiah and tried to preserve it and interpret it in light of current events, they might have inserted Cyrus's name when uh, Isaiah had been talking about some name, unnamed king in the future, and they'd put Cyrus's name into uh, the book of Isaiah, saying Cyrus is the chosen one, he's going to return Israel to the uh, promised land. Or it might have been that that Isaiah simply had a vision of the future, had the future opened up to him. In any case, what happened when Cyrus read the scriptures, it seems evident from the book of Ezra, if you read the beginning of it, um, Cyrus says, I have been chosen by God to restore the, the Jewish people to their home and to, and to allow them to build a temple to, to Yahweh. And he's, he's basically saying Yahweh is obviously a wise God because he recognizes how great I am. And this flattery really worked on Cyrus, and therefore he freed the Jews. He declared that they could all go, and any any of them that wanted to could return to Judah and Jerusalem, rebuild it, and they could take with them the things that had been looted from the temple. They could take with them the money that had been taken, the vessels of the Lord, silver and gold, great wealth they were allowed to take back. In the end, it was only about 50,000 Jews that ended up returning. Now think about uh, what had happened in the interim. First of all, uh, what Jeremiah said was, pray for, when you go into Babylon, pray for the good of Babylon as you would pray for your own good because they're going to be tied together. And and that was what ended up happening. They were there for so long that as Babylon prospered, the Jews prospered. And they didn't want to give up their lives in Babylon. Things were even better under the Persians than they had been under the Babylonians. And so... Two-thirds, at least, of the Jews elected to stay in Persia. And those who returned uh, were led by a man named Zerubbabel. He was a direct-line descendant of David. And so he was named as governor and allowed to exercise political authority. And 
he decided, along with the high priest Joshua, or Jeshua, as he's called also interchangeably almost in, in the Bible, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, and Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, are the same book. It's kind of like First and Second Kings. Uh, it's an artificial distinction. Uh, there's one author for these, or most people, most scholars believe there's one author for these two books, and, and uh, they've only been separated by the main character of these books. Probably both were written by Ezra. But Ezra doesn't figure in our story yet. Ezra is a prophet scribe who comes into the story a little bit later on. So Zerubbabel right now is the leader, and Joshua is the high priest. He is the descendant of Aaron. And and in Old Testament times, the priesthood was conferred by direct lineage. And so he had the right to the high priesthood. He had the authority to perform these rites in the temple, perform the sacrifices, and exercise his priesthood under the law of Moses. And so that's what they did. They returned to Jerusalem. They built an altar almost immediately. And after a few years, they also dedicated the cornerstone of the temple. They began to construct the temple. Now, if you remember the Samaritans, uh, we talked a little bit about them. First of all, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And when it was conquered by the Assyrians, they took the northern tribes away or, or a great many of them, there were still a few stragglers left behind, but they brought back in other peoples. And those other peoples mixed with the the Jews that were left from the 10 tribes. And they formed uh, a strange mixture of religion that was, by in name, it was the, the, the worship of Yahweh. And uh, it was slightly different from what the Jews in Judah believed. And it was more idolatrous, but it wasn't the idolatry that had dominated the, the northern kingdom for centuries. It was, it was something different. It was closer to true Judaism. It was closer to true worship of Yahweh. And so there was a, sort of a rivalry there and even an enmity because the Jews saw the Samaritans as perverting the true religion. When the Jews returned from Persia, the Samaritans showed up and they said, hey, we've had a temple going this whole time. We've been performing sacrifices since the days we uh, were first put in this land. We've, we've always loved Yahweh. We'd love to help you rebuild your temple. And uh, it's hard to say without more information, but it does seem like one of the classic blunders, the Jews said, no thanks, you can't have anything to do with us in building this temple. And this, this set off, this touched off centuries of hatred. In fact, uh, to this day, Samaritans exist in uh, what is today the the West Bank or the the Palestinian Authority. Samaritans exist in that uh, that area right against the the Jordan River, and in Mount Gerizim they have uh, or Gezerim they have the um, the temple of the Samaritans, which was a rival temple where they did sacrifices according to the law of Moses. They had a high priest and everything. When uh, when Alexander the Great came through uh, Palestine, the Samaritans tried to get him to conk, to attack Judah and vice versa. And they, and they sicked different uh, world powers on each other until it, was a, it wasn't just now um, a bitterness about religion. It was a blood feud. And it's very unfortunate because their, their beliefs were actually closer than any other group around them. They, they might as well have made common cause against their enemies together, but instead they hated each other. Uh, and so it's it's interesting that Christ, first of all, Christ's self-described mission was to the Jews, and yet he saw the Samaritans as his people also. 
you remember that he spoke with the woman near the well. She was a Samaritan woman, and uh, he told her about the kind of life she was living, but the fact that he was traveling through Samaria and preaching to the people there at all meant that he saw them as Jews. It's an interesting side note. Uh, So the Samaritans come to the Jews and they say, they come to Zerubbabel and they come to Joshua and they say, we'd love to help you build the temple and they're rebuffed by the Jews. So what they do is they they send a letter to the, the current emperor of Persia at that time and they say, the Jews are only rebuilding so that they can rebel against you. Don't you know the history of Judah? Don't you understand what kind of place Jerusalem is? Whenever they have any strength at all, They hate to have anyone ruling over them. And so they're going to, as soon as they get a little bit of power and a little bit of safety, they're going to throw off your yoke. Well, the Persian king believed this, and so he sent out a decree, okay, the the work on the temple has to stop. And it did for 20 years. So this is a, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of a a long-term story. They, in fact, they, they cover more than a century worth of time. But eventually a man named Ezra, uh, he's, he's a scribe in the court of Persia, and he hears about the, the way that uh, the, temp, the work on the temple is proceeding. And he's very knowledgeable in the law of Moses, obviously a Jewish man, and he's a prophet. In fact, the, the Jews see, see and saw Ezra as somebody with almost the same amount of authority, almost the same um, authoritativeness in, in the pronouncements that he made as Moses. It's just that he didn't have as much to teach them because they'd already had the, the commandments revealed by Moses, but they needed someone with like Ezra with Ezra's acumen spiritually to get them back on track. So Ezra is a very respected prophet in Judaism, and he makes the journey. It's probably two months uh, on foot to travel between Persia or, or between Babylon and Jerusalem. And he makes the journey, and Ezra starts calling people to repentance. The, the first thing he sees is that they have intermarried, the Jews have intermarried with the Canaanites, uh, and they're not keeping the Sabbath day holy, and they're making other uh, transgressions against the law of Moses. And so he starts preaching against this kind of thing. Well, under Ezra's exhortations, the Jews eventually did finish the temple. One of the most instrumental people in that process was Darius, the uh, Persian emperor, you remember Darius was the one who had, was forced by his other advisors to throw Daniel in the lion's den. Now, by this time, Daniel was probably in his late 80s or early 90s. So um, we can we can kind of, read if we read between the lines in the story, we can kind of tell that Dar- Daniel was very beloved by Darius. And when Daniel survived, uh, he not only had so much, he had the highest of respect for Daniel, but he also had so much respect for Yahweh that when Ezra asked him for uh, authority to rebuild the temple, he sent a decree saying, let nobody stand in their way. If anybody tries to change my decree, then they will be executed. Their houses will be pulled down. This is, um, he was very serious about this. The Jews are allowed to rebuild their temple, and nobody could stop them anymore. And um, so Ezra also, when, when he left uh, Persia. He was given great authority by Artaxerxes, the the emperor at that time. So he he came with some wealth as well as had Zerubbabel before him. So the it, if you remember the prophecies of the prophets before the exile, uh, one of the common phrases that you'll read in Isaiah, for example, is "Kings shall be your nursing fathers and queens your nursing mothers." And this is one of the fulfillments of that prophecy, which is political powers will open doors for you 
will make things possible that you would never have thought would ever happen to you, which is a king suddenly saying, not only do the Jews have the choice to return, but we're going to give them all this wealth. We're going to give them silver and gold. We're going to give them political power. We're going to send, um, we're going to send help, and we're going to send letters of introduction. And uh, this, is, this is brought to its height. This, this process finds its uh, pinnacle with a man named Nehemiah. So Darius gives the, um, the signal that the Jews can finish the temple. They have a, a dedication of the temple, um, at that, this, sorry, this is before Nehemiah, and the there are some Jews that are old enough to remember. It's been probably seventy or eighty years since the temple was destroyed by the time it's rebuilt, and the uh, there are some that are old enough to remember that old temple, and they're weeping, and everyone else is shouting for joy, and they uh, they realize they're they're in time for one of the festivals, and they begin observing the law of Moses again almost like little children, because they don't know it that well. And by this time, remember, they're speaking Aramaic. They've been away from Hebrew for so long, they can't understand the scriptures. So it's an interesting dynamic. They, uh, the scriptures are now in a foreign language to them. And so they kind of, not quite as bad, but they almost see the Old Testament the way we do, which is written by another culture in another language. It, it requires translation, and it requires what's, what's known as explication, in order for them to apply it to themselves and understand it. And then now, now a man named Nehemiah comes on the scene. Now Jerusalem is still a very weak regional power. It has, uh, it's, it's constantly oppressed by its neighbors, especially the Samaritans. And Nehemiah hears about this. He's, he's what's known as the, the cupbearer of the king. And he, uh, in other words, he, he enjoys such a position of trust that the king only allows Nehemiah to touch his food before it comes to him. He knows that Nehemiah would never do anything to harm him. And Nehemiah hears about this, the state that Jerusalem is in. And so I'm going to tell you the story of Nehemiah, and then I'm going to, I'm going to this is kind of the main point of this lesson for me. And then I'm going to tell you what I got from it on a personal level. First thing that Nehemiah does is he reads in the scriptures that God's promises are when when Israel is the the Israelites are wicked they will be scattered to the four winds and then he reads the promise that when they repent it doesn't matter how far they've been what corner of the earth they've been scattered to he can find them anywhere and he will look with mercy on them and he will um, cover them like a hen gathereth he will gather them like a hen gathereth her chicks right he uh, Nehemiah feels this this assurance from God that what he wants is to gather Israel. He doesn't want to scatter Israel. He cares about them and loves them so much. And so Nehemiah gets down on his knees and prays, and he says, God, I believe your promises. Now make me, help me be the person that's going to bring to pass your promises. The next day he's before the king, and the king says, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? I can tell you, you've got a problem. What is it? And uh, Nehemiah says, well, I've, just, I've heard about the state that Jerusalem is in. And um, the king says, Nehemiah, what would you ask of me? And it's interesting because Nehemiah, in, he writes in his book, he says that this is the thing that I had prayed to God that would happen. In other words, he he'd prayed specifically that God would have the king ask him, hey, what? why don't you ask me for something and maybe I'll grant it to you. 
And Nehemiah says, you know what I would really like is to have some men and have some some means and some authority to go to Jerusalem and fix the problem. And the king says, well, okay, let's talk about that. How long would this take? How long would you be gone? Obviously, he's going to miss Nehemiah. Nehemiah is his trusted cupbearer. But he does. He allows him and he actually grants Nehemiah's request. And he says, you can take a sizable contingent of men. You can take all this wealth. I'll give you letters of recommendation that no one is to hinder you along your way. And your errand is your errand is approved by me. And what is the errand? The errand is to see to the weakness of Jerusalem, to repair it or to uh, come to its aid. So Nehemiah makes this journey, takes all of his men, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he starts attracting these these followers of his of his convoy. And they're trying to tell him everything that's that's going on. They're trying to give him information about what he needs to do. And Nehemiah decides one night that he's going to go see for himself. So he sneaks away from everyone, and without anyone knowing, he he goes and looks at takes a look at Jerusalem, and sees that the walls. The real problem is that the walls are broken down. So there's a temple there, and the temple's functioning, and there is a prophet. There are sacrifices going on, but Jerusalem is at the mercy of every enemy round about because they have no walls. So he comes back in the morning and he says to all the people who he perceives as being loyal Jews, and he says, what what Jerusalem really needs is some dedicated people who are willing to put walls back up. And so this is where the, in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, this is where the title of our lesson comes from. The Jews say, okay, let us rise up and build. And right away, Nehemiah is there's there's tons of resistance. So the first form the resistance takes is ridicule. What are you going to do? You're going to rebuild these walls. You've got no you've got no materials. Uh, you guys don't know how to build a wall. The wall you're building is so weak. Even a fox jumping on it would would cause it to crumble down, come tumbling down. So uh, it's first ridicule, but then very soon it it starts to it, these the resistance transforms into plots against Nehemiah. So. Uh, the first thing they try to do is distract him from what he's doing. Nehemiah, uh, why don't you come out? You guys are you guys are building a wall, but you don't need a wall. Why don't you come down and talk to me? And Nehemiah sees through these, uh, and this is the Samaritan leader. This is the Moabite leader. This is the Edomite leader, the nations that surround Israel. The leaders keep contacting him and saying, just come out and talk to me. Just meet me on the plane here rather than making me come into the city. And Nehemiah says to them, his reply each time is the same thing. It's, why I'm doing a great work here. Why should the work stop while I come down and talk to you? But the real attempt is to get him away from the wall so that they can surround him and kill him. And he sees through, it's almost like Alma, uh, there are a few, a few episodes here that are reminiscent of uh, things we see in the Book of Mormon. One is, this is almost like um, Alma and Amulek seeing through Zeezrom's ruse and knowing what's in his heart. He, he can see what's in the heart of these people around him. And so he refuses to come down. He just keeps building the wall. And, and by this time, there, there's an entire chapter that lists the different clans that are working on different parts of the wall and the parts of the wall that they're working on. And so he's united all of these different Jewish factions that they're all willing to work for one common goal, which is to build the wall of Jerusalem. They're all working on it every day. And the the enemies hate it and they'll show up or they will try to make a surprise attack on Jerusalem. But Nehemiah is such an inspiring leader 
that there are always Jews that are living near these people that think, well, we really like Nehemiah. We don't want him to get taken by surprise. And so they'll come and inform, oh, there's a surprise attack coming, and they're ready for him. Even partially built, the walls are already performing their task, which is they give them a decided advantage against attack. So time and again, an army shows up to attack Nehemiah and the Jews that are building the walls around Jerusalem, and they see that they're ready for them, and they have their weapons in their hand, and they're, st- and they're sitting behind a wall, even though it's partially built, and they just turn around and go back home. And then they attack on another side on another day, but Nehemiah was tipped off in advance. So this happens again and again. So then they try to flatter him, and then they try to scare him. One of the tactics was, Nehemiah, aren't you scared that, you know, they get one of his friends to come to him. Nehemiah, aren't you scared that somebody's going to going to try to take your life. I know what you should do. You should sleep in the temple because there you'll be safe. God will protect you. And then you can work on the walls during the day. You can sleep in the temple at night. And Nehemiah perceives that the intent behind this was to make him sin because not being a priest, he's not allowed to go in the temple. And the, the, his enemies wanted to create a division between Nehemiah and Yahweh. They wanted to create, it was just like, if you remember the prophet Balaam, um, he had he was he was unable to prophesy ill against Israel, but he counseled the enemies of Israel. He said, "If you go, if you want to defeat Israel, try to seduce them into sin first, and then you'll have success against them in battle." And so these guys are trying a similar tactic. They're trying to get Nehemiah to commit sin by sleeping in the temple. Finally, the enemies Nehemiah's enemies they resort to threats. They say, "What we're going to do is if you don't if you don't come talk to us, we're going to." Right, what we think you're doing with these walls, we think you're going to rebel against the emperor, your friend, and we're going to write to him and let him know that you're only trying to fortify Jerusalem so that you can stage a rebellion and stop paying tribute to Persia. And this is a credible threat because if you have been paying attention to what happened in the book of Ezra just, just a few pages before, the work on the temple had been stopped for 20 years and more because of this very thing, because an emperor buying into this story. So these guys are trying a similar tactic that has worked in the past. But Nehemiah doesn't pay attention to it. He just keeps working every day, keeps working on the wall, and it drives everybody crazy. And finally, the wall is finished. And when the wall is finished, the people get together and they have a dedication ceremony. And Ezra starts teaching them hey, look, this is the law of Moses. You know what Moses said about marrying Canaanites? He said, don't do it. You know what Moses said about keeping the Sabbath day holy? He said, you better remember to keep the Sabbath day holy. And the fact that Ezra is there to, uh, as as the King James Version puts it, give the sense of the scriptures, makes everyone so happy that they weep for joy. Or actually, I think the way I should put that is, uh, that's my interpretation, They, they weep. We don't know if they're weeping out of mournfulness the way that King Josiah, if you remember, King Josiah discovered the scriptures in the temple, and then he started weeping in mourning because they hadn't been keeping the commandments. So it may have been that they were weeping for joy that they finally can understand the scriptures. Or maybe they were weeping out of mournfulness that they've been breaking the commandments for so long. In any case, the combination of Nehemiah and Ezra together in Jerusalem helped them to rebuild their faith. Their their culture had been that had been missing a temple for so long, and the temple was so central to Jewish life that there was almost no substitute for it. There was no way for them to, they didn't have a foundation on which to rebuild. But because of these two men and the decision that they made to never give up 
working on the task that they felt like the Lord had set before them, uh, they they affected the entire nation. They in in essence, these two people, their resolve allowed the entire Jewish nation to reconstruct itself. Uh, and so, I want to talk about for me what I what I'm taking as a personal lesson from the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and and I want to point out the first thing I'm going to do is point out six attributes of Nehemiah. So, if you remember the story. The first thing that Nehemiah was, was a man of the scriptures. When he heard the story of Jerusalem being mistreated by its enemies, he was able to put it into context. He was able to say, okay, God gave us the promise that if we were wicked, he would scatter us. But as soon as we were righteous, we repented and we were humble and recognized our sin and our dependence on God. Then he would gather us with great loving kindness and patience. And so secondly, he was a man of faith. He chose to believe that he could, with God's help, accomplish the task of restoring Jerusalem's security and glory. And he didn't, uh, he didn't wonder whether God would be faithful to his word. So he was a man of prayer. He, he prayed mightily that God would keep the promises that he made in the scriptures. And fourth, he was a man of work. So he set a goal. God, your promise is that you will gather us to the, the lands of our inheritance I want to be instrumental in your goal. That was the goal that he set for himself, and he kept at it no matter what. Fifth, Nehemiah was a man of devotion. He, he could have let himself be scared or enticed or distracted away from working on the walls. And as I said before, it would have been perfectly reasonable him, for him in some of the cases to do so. But instead, he, he kept at his task always, trusting in God that God would be true to his promises and his word. And finally, he's a man of righteousness. When the wall was built and dedicated, Nehemiah remained for a time as governor of Jerusalem, and he instituted laws that taught the people how to obey the commandments. He shut down the walls, the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and he would, would talk to people and say, hey, why are you not keeping the Sabbath day holy. Don't you remember what happened to the Jews when they didn't keep the Sabbath day holy? Do you remember the kind of curses that came upon our people? Do you, do you want the blessings from the Sabbath day or do you want these curses? And he would change their minds and change their behavior to the point where Jews began to be faithful because of Nehemiah. Now there's another prophet that figures into this story a little earlier on and his name is Haggai. So during the time when Ezra was finally getting the, the permission to rebuild the, uh, the temple, there was a prophet called Haggai who was saying that what happened was they had the permission to rebuild the temple, probably because Darius was such good friends with Daniel and decided to let the Jews do it. So the Jews had permission, and yet they were afraid that if they started building the temple again, well, who knows what they're afraid of, but it seems like they were afraid of uh, starting to build the temple again and then getting stopped again. And so they were building, they were working on something they knew would work, which was their own homes. They were trying to fortify their homes to provide for their own security. And the message of the prophet Haggai is this, why do you, you know, oh Israel, why do you think that nothing is going right for you? Why do you think you're not getting enough rain? Why do you think that your enemies have power over you? Why do you think that all of the things that you need to fall into place, like the trade and the political power and the, the 
abundance in your flocks and in your crops. Why do you think none of these things are working out for you? Here, I'll tell you why it is. It's because you're not working on my house. You haven't put any priority on me, Yahweh, your God. Here you are in the land of Israel. You've been gathered home, and you're not working on the temple. If you return to work on the temple, if you make the temple your priority, then I, God, will bless you. So stop working on your own homes. Take the priority out of the things that matter to you and put that priority on the things that matter to me. So it's it's not the exact same message as Nehemiah, but it's related. It's almost like the inverse. Because Haggai was saying, here's what happens when you don't put your priority on the things of God. You know, you can see all these blessings that you're not getting. And, and what Nehemiah was saying was, here are all the blessings that come. Aren't, aren't we going to rebuild our walls? Don't you see that we have to be united? And in fact, uh, the, other, the other parallel to the Book of Mormon was Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, he, in verse 14, it's almost like the title of liberty. It says, let us build our walls in, in, in memory of our children and our freedom and our religion. Um, let's build this wall so that we can have all the things that, all, that God has to bless us with in life. It's a wonderful scripture. And um, so to me, it seems like Nehemiah is a wonderful example for those of us who want to take control over our lives the way the Jews wanted to take control of Jerusalem. We, we want to be, uh, what we want to do is fulfill the promises of God in the scriptures to, the, to those in the latter days, which is this. In the latter days, I, God, will replace the, the heart of, the, the stony heart of my people with a fleshy heart, and I will write my law upon their hearts. They don't need to learn the scriptures anymore because the, my law will be in their hearts. And so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about a persistent theme, which is that we will be, in latter days, we will be the temple of God, meaning we'll be this shared space where God lives on earth. Remember, sh- the temple is sort of shared space. It's, it's on earth, but God also sees it as his home. It's heavenly space and earth space. And the, the closer we get to God and the more we're willing to let him write his law on our hearts, the more we can also take that uh, role, fulfill that role of being shared space. We can be earthly beings, but we can also be the dwelling place, especially as we make covenants with Christ, we become the dwelling place of God as well. And so to me, this is how we perform the promise of God to do this mighty work in the latter days. This is, remember in Isaiah, God talked about doing a new thing. No longer will my people say, this is the God, um, as, as the Lord liveth that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. No, they're going to, people will swear by the, as the Lord liveth, who did this new thing that I will do, this work on you, the, a marvelous work and a wonder which is that I will change your hearts. I'm going to gather you and I'm going to create a people that are worthy of me. So if we look at that promise and we say like Nehemiah did, God, I believe the promise that you made in the scriptures. I believe that you can do it and I want to be a part of it. It's not enough for me to say to you, God, please help help those people in Jerusalem, in faraway Jerusalem, won't you bless them? Instead, what Nehemiah prayed for was, number one, he said, God, help me to be the one to do it. And number two, something specific. Tomorrow, I'm going to go talk to the king. And will you have him ask me what it is that I need? So Nehemiah had a plan. 
and he knew he was going to be part of this work. So isn't it interesting that we can choose, if we want to, we can, be, we can choose to have work set before us, which is we can change ourselves and we can help to change those that are within our sphere of influence, that we can have the laws of God written on our hearts. We can become the shared space between the earthly and the divine, and we can help lead and influence other people to do the same and to have the same blessings. And we can pray to God and say, God, I believe your promises. I believe that really is the work you're going to do in the latter days. And I want to be part of it. So then what is very likely to happen is God is going to say, okay, here is some blessings. Here are some of the things, here are some resources that you need to get that done. And as soon as that happens, then resistance is going to take shape. And it might take the shape of as it did for Nehemiah, it might take the shape of mockery. But as we get closer to success, it's going to take the shape of threats and distractions and seductions and all kinds of enticements for us to just come down from the walls for one day and come out into the plain and meet with our enemies. And it could be anything, right? It could be something like you could be dealing with a problem like a gambling addiction, or you could be dealing with a problem like a long-standing squabble with a family member. And so you're but in any case what you're doing is when you're when you're changing yourself into the kind of person that is shared space between earthly and divine, then when you are building a wall, you are building uh, a barrier between yourself and sinful behavior, and uh, any kind of prideful thought, the, the resistance that comes is going to try to entice you away from that labor and say, just come down from the wall and talk to me. And it seems to me like, it, it, as I was reading this, it just, it just hit me very powerfully that uh, what Nehemiah was doing is a mirror of our labor that we do in our lives every day, which is, I'm trying to re- improve myself as a person, I'm trying to become the man I want to be one day, uh, the, the kind of man that when I die, God is going to say, uh, I'm proud of who you are, and you don't have to be embarrassed in my presence. And so many distractions show up in that process, right? So many things say, come down off your wall. And if I am being insightful about that, I can see in those distractions, oh, if I come down off the wall, what I'm making a choice to do is to put myself in the power of somebody who probably doesn't have my best interests at heart. And I don't mean some person. I mean some force, some resistance, whatever whatever shape the resistance might take. And it could be a person, but it could also be um, your own thought patterns from, let's say, childhood. It could be uh, a belief about yourself that survives because of a past relationship with a family member or with uh, any kind of relationship. Or it could be an actual person that wants to do you harm. These, these, these resistance can take any shape in your life. And what Nehemiah did was he said, no, I'm, God has given me a task. I took it on. I chose it. And I asked God for help, and he gave me that help. And I'm not stopping for anything. And it wasn't the fact that uh, Nehemiah wasn't listening to, the, to those resisting him, to the enemies of Jerusalem that made, him hate him, made them hate him. They would have hated him no matter what he did. Had he come down off the walls, they wouldn't have stopped hating him. Had they listened to their requests, had he done any of the things they asked him to do, they would never have stopped. 
their, their goal was to get him to stop building the wall. He was very astute to see that. But so often in life, what we do is we think, oh, I can, I can make a deal with Satan. Uh, and, and not Satan personally, but the influences that Satan puts in our lives. I can make a deal with them. I can, I can please God without offending the devil. Isn't that interesting we think that? And what Nehemiah said was to himself was, no, I don't care if these people have their feelings hurt. I'm not going to stop what I'm doing. But his reply was consistent. It was, I'm doing a great work. Why should the work stop while I come down from the wall and meet with you? What, what important thing do you have to say to me that you can't say up here while I'm working? Because what I'm doing is more important than talking to you. What I'm doing is more important than paying attention to the resistance that I have of creating out of myself a better person. So Nehemiah's work in his day, in this, in this day of the Old Testament, and this is near the end of the, the narrative story of the Old Testament. We'll talk in our final lesson, we'll talk a little bit about the time between the Testaments as well. But um, Jerusalem was destroyed, they were carried away captive, now they're back, and the work of that time was to rebuild the city, to rebuild the civilization, and Nehemiah prayed to be part of it, and he was given great blessing and great power, and he was chosen to be in that place at that time. You and I share that same attribute, which is we were given great power and great blessing to, to do God's work in this day, which is to change us, to turn us into the kind of people that can call God back to the earth. That is our task. Our task in the latter days is to is to have is for God to have a people on earth that can render the earth worthy of him living here among us. That's what God has wanted from every age, but he's been talking about the latter days since the time of the Old Testament prophets. They've all been saying, "I'm there, there will come a day when I really will change your hearts, O Israel." And when that day comes, it will be seen as a marvelous work and a wonder. You and I are called to that work, and we have also made covenants. We have prayed to God, and we've said, God, I want to be involved in this work. I want to be the one who goes to Jerusalem and builds that wall. And God has said, okay, here are some resources for you to do what you said you want to do. And we've said, God, I trust in your promises that are in the scriptures. And God says, here's the gift of the Holy Ghost. Here is a patriarchal blessing. Here are priesthood leaders. Here are... Um, a, a support network that loves you and cares about you and prays for you. And that is, and here are some spiritual gifts, right? That Those are the bare minimum of uh, resources that I believe just about everybody has who sets their hand to this work. And so many of us have many more resources than that. And for us to then come down off the wall is uh, is a sad thing. It's a, it's a lack of vision on our part. And that I just wanted to point that out. It was so very clear as I read the book of Nehemiah, how, how wonderful it was. And I encourage you to read, in, in this particular case, you can just read the chapters that are outlined in the lesson, 1 to 2, 4, 6, and 8. You can read those chapters of Nehemiah and kind of get the point, which is, and it's pretty quick reading. You, the point is that Nehemiah was so single-minded in his purpose, and he let nobody distract him from the wonderful work that he had covenanted with God that he would perform and that God had given him the support that he would perform. And Nehemiah was successful in that work. And it was because of his resolve and it was because of his faithfulness and his diligence and his resolution that 
Israel became the nation that it did become, that Christ had a place to be born into, that the, uh, that the promises of God could be fulfilled in later generations as well. One person made a very large difference. And the same thing is true for you and me. We can make a very large difference in the way the future unfolds if we will make covenants with God and faithfully fulfill them. That is the powerful message of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, I'm very grateful to have, to have had this insight and to be able to share it with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.